Hello, I'm James Batchelor, and you're listening to the Games Industry Doctors podcast. I am once again joined by the entire team at Games Industry Doctors. I am joined by Matthew Handrahan, Brendan Sinclair, Hayden Taylor, Rebecca Valentine, and uh, Chris Dream. Are you sure, Chris? Because you didn't sound sure about that. No, I'm not. Well, see, loads of people today are asking me if I if I go for Chris or Christopher, and I I think after 33 years, I need to make a decision. You do. Um, I'm going to go with Chris. Chris String. Okay, mine. Chris String. Chris String yeah. confirmed. Um, this is our post-E3 show. This is hopefully the final part of E3 2018 coverage that we're going to do because we've been exhaustively and exhaustingly covering the show over the last few weeks. Rather than a recap of what was announced at each conference, what the biggest announces, yeah, releases were and biggest release dates given... We're going to go for something a bit more different. We're going to go for more of a discussion show because, let's face it, all of that stuff is A, already on the website, and B, already on all other websites. So each member of the team has chosen a topic, a trend, something they took away from the show. We're going to be looking at these in in turn, in depth, probably about five to ten minutes per per topic. Uh, We're going to start with you, Brendan. Brendan, you wanted to talk about the, the tension between the show as a trade show and as a consumer event. Now, what did you mean by that? So a couple of years ago, um, actually last year, so now two shows, they opened up E3 to the public, sort of, selling about 15,000 tickets. Until then, it had always been, uh, you had to have like a professional reason to be there. Even in 2005, six, when it got really big and out of hand, um, that was mostly like people that worked at GameStop or EB Games or whatever, getting a, a access through work. Um, but since they started to open it up to fans, you start to have to worry about what the average fan experience coming into the show is going to be. And this is just like, it doesn't really work as a fan show right now, I don't think. And it, because of the fan show, like it doesn't really work as well as a trade event as it used to. There, there aren't enough kiosks to satisfy the huge number of attendees that don't have any connections to get private showings to the games. Um, that problem's exacerbated by the fan experiences that a lot of publishers are uh, devoting space to. Like in the Fortnite booth, you could stand in front of a green screen and, and have a, you know, a photoshopped paragliding picture of yourself. Or Resident Evil 2, there was a ruined cop car. Uh, that you could sit in the driver's seat of all the zombies on the hood, you know, pawing at you or or whatever. Rage 2 had, like, the big test-your-might hammer thing, like, from the county fair. Uh, and each one of those, like, gets this huge line of its own for something that's not, you know, not even playing the game. So, like, those things are super appropriate for a fan event where it's a celebration of the games and the the brands and engaging with them in any way, shape or form. But for E3 where um, so much of it, so many of the attendees are there on like a professional basis, it, it doesn't really make sense to have uh, so much of the, the show floor sort of dedicated to these, to these fan things. And at the same time, the fan experience seems to, you know, like you pay 150, 250 bucks to get in there. And then you just wait in line for two games or a, a picture op, a photo op. 
Well, Bre- Brendan's, of course, saying this like he didn't queue up to get his picture of himself parachuting into Fortnite. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that'll be live on the site in due course. Um, the thing is, I've actually, I've actually never been to uh, to E3, which is a very weird oversight in terms of my, my career. I'm much more of a GDC guy. And one of the reasons why, I mean, I've had opportunities. I've, I've always kind of... Um, given priority to other more sort of industry focused events because like I've, I've never really seen E3 as a, it's never really come across as an, uh, as a particularly great place to actually work. Like there always has seemed to be this kind of consumery tints to the whole thing. And if their memory serves, there wasn't there like a year or two years where it all kind of moved into like the basement of a few hotels in LA or something like where yeah, the was- ESA just sort of like lost faith in it being a, a good place to work and just made it into a more conventional um, sort of uh, industry type uh, conference environment. Did that happen or is that my kind of weird destroyed memory? Yeah, that, that happened. Uh, and nobody that liked was... that. And they all wanted to go back to the big noisy halls again. Um, and now we're back to that level and everyone's moaning about that. So we'll probably go back to the uh, really quiet places again and it will bounce back and forth like a, um, it's, E3 is always more fun to watch than it is to actually experience um, I think that's always been true and it's all about it's more about the people at home than it is about the people on the show floor and opening it up to consumers means there's more people social mediaing and streaming and taking pictures of themselves and doing all that kind of stuff, sharing things it's a big marketing spend isn't it and I think from our perspective of industry people going uh, yeah our role has become decreasingly important um, uh, that makes that is that the right way of saying that i don't know um so yeah it, it's one of those things with e3 um i think it i think afterwards if you're the boss of take two or ea or ubisoft or whatever and you go home and you see your your marketing team does your little how how many people watch your twitch streams and youtube videos and how many people tweeted that um uh our raccoon police department car and all this kind of stuff and they'll be very very happy and they'll go back to the esa and i'll say this was great it was really effective for us and nothing will ever change. But um, that's me being negative. But yeah, um, E3 isn't isn't a, it, it's an exciting show. It's really brilliant. I think it has definitely has a very big role to play in the market. I just I just don't think it's never been. I don't think it's ever really been a good industry event. At least not for for ten years now. Before two thousand nine or so, when websites couldn't rely on constantly streaming every event and. All the uh, the images were, you know, like postage stamp size, grainy things, and video was just as small and terrible. Like going to E3 in the early mid two thousands was a hugely different event. It was exciting because you knew you could get your hands on just about everything. And my experience of the show was just year after year, more and more stuff became behind closed doors. There were fewer games and fewer kiosks actually out on the floor. It's it's changed a lot. But yes, in recent years, it's much better to just sit at home and enjoy it from there. I, I agree with Brendan, and I, I don't know if I had a very unique experience at E3 this year. So I went last year, was my first year, when it was also op- open to the public. So I've only ever known E3 as you know, open to all these people. Um, but my experience between last year and this year 
was that the things that were on the floor that people were lining up for were either games. I mean, they were like, like Fortnite was on the floor. Fortnite had this huge booth and Fortnite is obviously already out. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff on the floor that was either already out or they were games that have been, we've known about them for a while. Um, you know, there've been demos at other events. Like they're things that are already relatively well known. And a lot of the really new stuff was, as Brendan said, behind closed doors. I think, I think the majority of my appointments were off the show floor this year. Um, Ubisoft moved up into some rooms kind of back somewhere. Activision moved away. Xbox had their whole own event somewhere else. And so it it was just kind of an interesting like distinction between this year and last year. Like A whole bunch of people, even if they still had their booths on the show floor with certain things in them, these publishers decided, well, you know, we, we still want to get some work done in addition to generating, you know, Twitch... Twitch views or YouTube views or whatever we're doing. So we're going to move that out of the way and try to expedite the experience as much as possible for the people we need to, you know, write articles or do gameplay previews um, and then just kind of separate those things out. It, I didn't see it everywhere, but I saw it more often than I did last year. I thought that was interesting. That's broadly the uh, the structure of Gamescom, though, isn't it? Right. So <clears throat> in Gamescom, you have a consumer focused series of halls but you have two real like uh, two multi-floored halls that are entirely about behind closed doors stuff and business meetings and the twain do not meet i mean i again didn't go to e3 haven't been to e3 but it does sound like the consumers and the press are all kind of being and streamers and everybody's all kind of operating in exactly the same space uh, for the most part, or it was last year anyway. So maybe it's moving more towards that structure where you just have to accept that the press just can't be walking around the same location as all of the paying customers, and you have to kind of cater to those two different people as as two different groups of people. Yeah, nothing showed that more than um, Take Two's booth in the South Hall. Like That honestly felt like a business booth from a Gamescom business hall that had just somehow been put up in the wrong in in the wrong area because all of the obviously take two didn't have many games or any games at 83 but they had this like their, their booth was just this kind of business executive lounge that felt like a hotel lobby with kind of nice zen couches and, and little trees and pot plants and stuff and it's next to a jurassic world fortress and the really noisy activision destiny 2 area so just it felt kind of out of place going back to what rebecca was saying about how a lot of the games on the show floor are games that are already out. People are queuing up for games that they already have, particularly things like Fortnite. I think we're going to see a lot more of that as games push towards being a live service. Most of Ubisoft's booth was things like Rainbow Six, uh, For Honor, albeit the new content for it, but that's content that people are going to get their hands on within just a couple of months. So, yeah, the, the, in terms of how far-reaching the, the show floor goes, it's going to become a lot more about what present titles are. That games as a service thing is, has been it was really prominent for me this this year just because so many publishers have so many games as a service. Like Square Enix is still devoting a big chunk of its booth to Final Fantasy uh, 14. Right, the online one came out like 2010, 2011. Like that game has been at every E3 since then, and it's just I decided back then that I didn't care about this game and. That's something that I didn't have to deal with at E3 years and years ago. Everything was new. Everything was exciting. Now with the games as a service thing, the the sort of um, E3 as a hype parade is a little muted because I know what Fortnite is. I know what Final Fantasy 
fourteen is. Like I've I've seen these games before and seen them on the show floor again. I'm sure for for fans of the series, it's great and it's still effective marketing. But for general hype around the industry itself, I, I feel like it's less effective for me now. Well, I, th- I think that there's a bunch of different forces that are behind that, though, right? Like, well, one of them is the sort of the conflict, the conflicted nature of E3, what it, what it, what it has historically been, what it has slowly turned into over time. This idea of, you know, we we need to go there and do one job, but it's also been transparently been catering to kind of uh, consume more more like consumer minded people. Even even in the days before it opened to the public, as you said, Brendan, you know, if you had a job at GameStop, you can go. That 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 person is not necessarily going to make it any easier for you, you to do your job. That person might get more excited about say a, a Fortnite booth, perhaps. But it's also just like that. A lot of the publishers just got a lot fewer games in general now, right? Like there's. All kinds of different surprises you can find. You're just not necessarily going to find them on the E3 show floor anymore. Like what I suppose E3 represents a couple of part of the industry that has become much more much more centered on a handful of extremely massive games. Those games are now being operated as services, which means there are fewer and fewer all the time. But E3 is not affordable to people that don't operate in that space, which is why you have devolvers, you know, anti E three presence who've got Good Shepherd joined them this year. And you have all of the and all of the people that represent more of the genuinely surprising stuff in the industry just have to go elsewhere or focus on different shows or Indicade appears or PAX or something like that. Well that rather nicely leads us on to Rebecca's topic. Um Rebecca, you wanted to talk about the the hang on the continued saturation of E three with shooters and action adventures on stage as the big headline games. I mean Fairly sure I know what you mean, but like, yeah, would you like to discuss a little bit more about that? It was, it was just more of a feeling, right? So I'm, you know, I've only been to the two E3s. I'm probably a little bit newer to the games industry than the majority of you. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really start paying attention to E3 until maybe like 2015 or so, 2014 maybe. Um, and but I mean, even then, like, I just, I, I was there and I was watching all these presentations. And af- after EA and I think. I think Xbox maybe, like the first two, I watched them, and it just felt like like every game was not necessarily the same game, because, you know, obviously, you know, people who like those games are going to come at me and tell me, oh, no, they're all very different for all these reasons. Um, but, you know, I felt like I was just watching the same person over and over, controlling this, you know, character with a gun, running around and shooting things. Like, that just seemed like so many games up there, one after another. I remember watching Xbox, and I'm, you know, I'm not into that type of game in particular, um, and I, I watched Xbox, and I thought, wow, I'm really excited for Ori and Tunic, and everything else here is a person holding a gun, shooting things. Like, that's, that just felt like everything. And then, in my own appointments, you know, I, I tried to, you know, demo a whole bunch of different games that involved, you know, a whole bunch of games that were going to be bigger titles, um, and I just felt like I was playing shooter games, like, all day, every day, and it felt like a huge break just to play Little Dragon's Cafe, which is like this relatively unknown game that involves running a cafe and raising a dragon. Like, it, it's not it's not a huge deal, but it's it was just such a small thing, like in the middle of just constantly shooting everything, and everything felt like post apocalyptic and action adventure, and it, it's just like I I don't know, like I, I don't I don't really know what to say about that except that I am surprised that that's still everything. I feel like that's well, been you, everything for years now. Well, you, you, I, I completely... You, you, it's always been a case of E3, and it's interesting you mentioned Xbox, because actually they used to be the worst for it. I remember one year, it was I think there were four games in a row where someone got stabbed in the neck, and it was like, yeah, okay. And um, uh, 
but it's always been a little bit like that but it's getting worse and it's because because of actually what we were talking about earlier about it becoming more of a consumer show it knows its audience e3 there used to be a time when um do you remember, nintendo ended their conference once with wii music and everyone belittled them. and i used to work for a retail title and the retailers loved it I thought this is exactly what we need. This is going to broaden the market out and widen out to new audiences and consumers. But everyone who watched the Nintendo press conference belittled it and mocked it. And then they did the same with Nintendo Land. And so Nintendo now turned up to E3 and just showed Smash Brothers, which is not particularly violent, but it's obviously a beat-em-up, and obviously very hardcore. And then, you know, Xbox doesn't show its casual stuff. It doesn't do too much, but um, it doesn't show that anymore. Last year was, I thought, the most notable thing happened last year when Sony announced their big broadening the market initiative last year which is playlink and announced it before their press conference and didn't show it on stage they you know it wasn't that long ago or maybe it is longer than i remember it when they showed wonderbook out on stage which is their big let's harry potter let's make this big mainstream product and all the kids at all the gamers at home really sort of didn't like that at all in fact you saw it a little bit this year with command and conquer which i know we sort of it was you know ea's resurrecting an old brand that's beloved on the world's most popular platform and everybody turned on them and it was like it just wasn't the right audience for it and as a result what you're getting increasingly is when it comes to stuff that's a little bit more kid friendly and stuff like that um uh you're just not getting it e3 um and it's becoming yeah it's, it's always been that way but it's becoming even more pronounced and nintendo is almost like a breath of fresh air but even they don't do it um they don't focus too much on the, the more interesting stuff these days but yeah uh, it's, it's always i think it's going to get worse that might explain why Media Molecules Dreams was kind of, sort of, at Sony's thing, but not really. That's exactly what I was about to mention. <laughs> yeah, we were all, a whole bunch of uh, people that I know that, you know, are, are journalists or just people kind of in the industry in some way were asking about Dreams and were really curious about Dreams. But, I mean, I was at the Sony event, and we technically saw Dreams. It was shown on the on the stage after kind of like the little after party thing after the actual presentation and they were playing like some music game with it but if you weren't there when they introduced it and didn't know it was dreams you walked in and you had no idea what was going on it was just some little like music thing and we didn't really see anything of the game it was just it was just a performance essentially i remember i I don't know what year it was and i don't even remember exactly what it was but i think it the Xbox conference, they did like a demo of Minecraft and like AR or VR or something on stage. And it was really cool and it was really unique. And I didn't see anything like, I mean, I know like VR and AR is a whole different conversation, but I didn't see anything that was like technologically fascinating or just outside the norm. It was just, you know, trailers with people running around and action adventures and either shooting or slaying like constantly. It was a software year. It wasn't a hardware year. Yeah. There was a bit, I think the only, I was sort of, we have that hardware category, don't we, in the RE3 awards, and it's like it's either the accessibility controller from Xbox or the Pokemon Go controller. It's the only two sort of, and both of them are kind of accessible, interesting um, ideas. But yeah, there wasn't any sort of cool. Uh, uh, this is going to change how we see things. But then, but then, I mean, I think it's important to remember that you know that Minecraft on Hololens isn't exactly Microsoft's finest moment, and I do think the platform holders have become a bit more wary about using the E3 stage for things that they don't necessarily know have really got legs, whether that's really the place they want to do that sort of stuff anymore. I mean, and, and on that point, and to the point about Dreams, I mean, the thing to remember is it's E3 is not the only place that Sony can address its audience. It's got a Gamescom, which has got more people at it than E3 has. It can do a press conference at, play, uh, at Gamescom, which would be streamed by just as many people. It has its own PlayStation 
focused event around Paris Games Week at the end of the year. I mean, I think we just get tunnel vision around E3 because uh, North America is such a big market. It can feel like the only one that matters. And if something's not there, then it's not there at all. But I mean, my guess is if Dreams is not at E3, it's going to be delayed into 2019 and it will show in, uh, in Paris towards the end of the year. Well, the thing is, Dreams was there. As Rebecca says, it was at the, the party, which, I, Rebecca, no, I was that person that walked in halfway through and, and wasn't sure what it was. But it was also on the Sony booth on the, on, in the West Hall. But it was in the, it was the behind closed doors kind of industry only bit. And it was there and it was playable. And I walked, walked past and someone was actually building something with Dreams. So it's taking yeah, shape. I, 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 yeah, I get I get that, but I but it doesn't kind of negate the idea that Sony can do can do a deeper dive on Dreams at another event later in the year. This, I mean, the the idea that because Dreams wasn't on stage at E3 is some kind of snub that that can't be taken back is I think it's just slightly that that would have been true like five years ago. I just think that now there are more stages from which Sony in particular communicates from. And we yeah. could we could end up within you know October November after Dreams inevitably gets delayed into Q1 or Q2 2019 have yeah. 20 minute a 20 minute Dreams demo and then all of this becomes fair, fairly academic. The idea the, I guess the point is the fact that something isn't at E3 on a, on the public facing stage doesn't mean it is being snubbed. I suppose it could mean that Sony specifically views E3 in a certain way now and the kind of people yeah. that watch E3 in a certain way and they aren't the dream the people it wants it's, to talk to about dreams. So uh, as the uh I'll I'll play the uh arrogant American here in this chat real quick. Um but j- just as someone who came from like the who's in the US and who came from like consumer writing really recently I think the thing about E3 is that at least in the United States, like it's kind of viewed as like like the overall picture of the industry, like for us here. Like I know, I know so many people both involved in the industry and not necessarily involved in industry who the only gaming event they look at all year is E3 and they watch it and they kind of take that as like their snapshot of what's coming in the year ahead. And that's what they know about. And if it didn't show at E3, they may or may not hear about it, like depending on how often they read articles or check Twitter or whatever. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting to look at E3 from that perspective and see it as this is a snapshot that some people get of the industry and these are what all the games look like and that's just what they are and they might not see anything else for the rest of the year if they don't necessarily watch directs or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I would, I would imagine that is definitely true. But I would also imagine that there are people with, like, you know, reams of paper with loads of numbers on that have taken the decision that dreams doesn't belong on that stage right and that and i think i think historically actually uh, media molecules games have sold far better i mean if you look at europe as the corollary to north america rather than britain or france or whatever but all of those countries together i'm pretty sure media molecules games have done better in europe than they have in north america historically so maybe it's that's l- behind it but, it's but, it's, but, it's, but it's not it's just, it's just it's not a it's not a decision that sony would have taken for shallow reasons, is what I'm saying. Right. It's less about dreams specifically, though, and more just as so many of the games that were shown up there were very much the same. G- dreams was an example of something that would have been very much an outliner that outlier that could have been shown, but wasn't really in a sufficient way. And so it, it was just kind of being used as an example, but I think that there were probably like a lot of games, both indie and maybe even a few AAA, that could have been shown that weren't, that would have been would have varied things up a little bit and it was just interesting to look at the whole thing and see so much of the same 
and then see these other things left out that could have made the industry look a little more diverse in terms in terms of genre and theme yeah spyro wasn't anywhere um i know it was there but it wasn't on anyone's stage or anything like that i thought that was quite um interesting there wasn't much nostalgia i know i i I, you are right i mean e3 used to be the show where the mainstream media would go so it was like this is our this is our show to show you the world not just ourselves but show the world what the games industry is going to do for the next year and retailers used to go and toys r us used to be there and all these companies that weren't necessarily interested in the latest violent shooter um, but it has, I think, as we spoke about in the first topic, it's, it's just that E3's become less and less about that and more and more about um, um, social media hype and Twitch and that kind of thing. And I think, and I do think that if you're on Dreams, um, you might get a couple of, uh, I might get a cool BBC article or something out of E3 on it. But the reality is Halo's probably got that sewn up. So you, you might want to, you know, as Matt suggested, go to, either go to Gamescom or do you don't even need to do that. Just do your own thing um like like um intended with labo or um uh yeah but um yeah i i miss e3 when it used to have those little moments i mean i suppose that's one of the reasons why i've never really chased hard to go i mean i'll go one day no doubt because e3 has always been the sort of the punchy stabby shooty shows to me like and i it's not it's not the part of the industry that interests me the most um, but I think this kind of ties back to the previous point, which is, you know, fewer games on the show floor. I mean, we're just where we are potentially just getting to a point where these companies, you're not going to you, you can't go to them for the variety anyway. I, I get that they have variety in their back catalogues, but but maybe what 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 it, well, the variety three will have from now on is Phil Spencer giving a paying lip service to a guy in Nova Scotia making a, you know, a game about a mouse pretending to be Zelda or whatever it was. It was a fox, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get, the, I get your point. <laughs> um, okay, well, looking looking at the games in general, then, and, and the uh, the shooty stabbiness of all the games, and um, the kind of the thing I wanted to talk about was um, the the glacially sh- slow shift towards more females doing the stabbing or the shooting. Um, it's obviously been a kind of a, a topic of discussion for the last few years, but this maybe it's because I was actually on the show floor for once, but this is the year where I actually noticed actually, yes, we are slowly starting to get more female protagonists and a, a more diverse range of protagonists in those big headline games. So Assassin's Creed, you can choose to play as a man or a woman. And that was actually something um, kind of put up front like quite a lot. And the fact they chose Cassandra rather than Alexios to demonstrate the game was a good an interesting touch. The fact that Gears 5 is now you play as a woman rather than a ridiculously muscle-bound, steroid-driven man or whatever the hell they are. <laughs> I don't play Gears, I'm sorry. Um, I'd be intrigued to see what you guys think. Though. Like, are we starting to see the industry obviously be a bit more conscious of you know, diversifying who its its big AAA games appeal to, or am I just you know trying trying to see hope too hard? I think you're I think you're right. It is, it is glacially slow, but there has been a real spike in the last few months. Obviously, you've got like Battlefield Five as well, um, which caused no end of controversy. But there has just been a sort of very sudden shift, which I noticed <clears throat> at E3, where just sort of almost unprecedented level of uh, sort of female-led games, or at least, you know, with Assassin's Creed, the option. So it's a very curious decision, and I wonder how much of that is being the result of sort of pressures from, you know, consumer advocacy groups and stuff, and I wonder how much of an effect, you know, the, the, the sort of the screaming man-babies of the will actually have on sales. 
because um, a, a, the Battlefield Five developer was saying that um, you know either get over it or don't buy the game, which I think is a fantastic attitude. Yeah, yeah I, I actually thought the um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it obviously is is completely commendable, but like the the Assassin's Creed. Yeah, Assassin's Creed's inclusion of a of a choice between female or male protagonists seems to be as much indicative of the glacial slowness as of this kind of this new sort of wokeness to to game publishers. I mean, we've had Christ knows how many uh, Assassin's Creed games where you get to kind of ruminate for sixty hours on these brooding male characters. Can't we just have a female one? Does it have to be a choice? That seems to be the sort of the. Um, the hedging of bets, which is likely to continue for another few years yet, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I would have been happy if they'd just gone with a female character that they can fully flesh out, and it won't be two line the same line of dialogue read in two different ways. You know, I I, I felt like that that was a little bit of a cop out on their on their part. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that. And and actually, like, kind of the 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 disappointing thing about Assassin's Creed is inevitably, if there is another one next year, it won't have. Uh, it probably won't have this choice. So the reason this one is being led, uh, Odyssey is being led by Ubisoft Quebec, who did um, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, the uh, Victorian London um, ed- edition. They've been working on this since Syndicate finished, and Syndicate had a choice of protagonists, albeit you didn't play the, you couldn't play the woman all the way through the game, but you could choose between the two. It just wasn't sold as a, a massive selling point for that one. So this is just a natural extension of what Quebec did with their previous Assassin's Creed, which means that whoever makes the next one is probably going to be building on, yay, let's have another brooding male protagonist again. Um, so it's kind of it's a one step forward before we're about to take two steps back next year, I imagine. That's a bit of an assumption. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just trying, I'm not, I'm not going to add much conversation, but there was an Assassin's Creed with a female. Was that Liberation or something? Liberation, yeah. But there, yeah. that was a, that was a spin-off of, it was a spin-off PSP of Assassin's game. Creed 3. It was, yeah, oh, it was, was a it? PSP oh, game. Okay. Like, here, look, we made one with a woman in it. Now you can all be happy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, maybe I was paying attention. I seem to remember that happening before. Um, that was, that was pre-Unity um, female gate um uh, unity gate issue wasn't it so that was that was a i seem to remember anyway i don't really remember i was just asking yep. I, want to go I think there is perhaps a contrast between the if you look at the presentations like on stage it definitely feels like there is you know just this very, this very slow movement to having more women as you know, the, the main characters are a choice of characters at the front of games. But I think when you when you look at everything on the show floor, like kind of in total, I feel like just just as an impression, like anecdotally, it seems like there's still qu- quite a ways to go. Because when I was just going around the show floor, I mean, I was I was still playing as a man most of the time. Like the, there wasn't always the, there wasn't always a choice um, when there was. It was more often not a, than not a choice instead of just having a female lead in some way. So it's great that companies are more willing to put women at the front uh, when they show their presentations. But just in terms of like the massive bulk of games that are being shown, um, there you know there's still we all know there's still a long way to go. One thing that I was sort of encouraged by this year, um, maybe I I just wasn't really looking for it in previous years, but the audience at E3, the attendees, were uh, a more diverse mix of people than uh, I'd, I'd noticed in the past. And I think a big chunk of that is that they opened it up partly to consumers. Because um, I think the consumer base for, for games is incredibly diverse, and more so than you 
than you see in most press outlets, um, ours specifically. Uh, but like I would walk around the, the, the show floor and I'm like, okay, well, let's see how, how long has it been since I've, I've seen, you know, just woman of color. Cause that, that was something that I don't really remember seen very much at all when I would be at E3, you know, in 2001 or 2005 or whenever. And every now and then I would just kind of say, okay, how long will it be until I, I see? It? And, and it would be like, you turn your head and there's people of every, you know, every gender presentation, every skin color, every body shape, whatever. And like, I, I think that will actually, that will actually help um, publishers to sort of understand the, the true scope of the audience that they are catering to. Um, and in the future, I would expect more, more diversity in the, in the actual protagonists of these games and more willingness to, to not just have it be man, dude, stabby, stabby. I also think that amongst the audience, at, le- at least among the press audience, I don't know, I can't speak for the larger audience, but I think that there was a greater appreciation for that this year. Um, a really nice moment was at the Sony event um, during the Kiss and the Last of Us 2 trailer. Like when it happened, the audience that was just physically present, like they cheered, but it wasn't it wasn't like a like a stupid, you know, kind of teenage. Oh, yeah, kind of cheer. Like it was a it was a really like respectful, like, yes, you're doing this. This is great. We appreciate this. Put more of this awesome stuff in games. Like it, it was really nice and appreciative and happy. And like it, it was just it was a really great moment, like to be there in the audience for that. Looking then at more business stuff, because we're, we're getting on for time. Um, Matt, there was one particular developer that uh, impressed you this week, and maybe not one that everyone thought of immediately. Yeah, yeah, there, there was one developer. It actually sort of escaped my notice, and I feel slightly bad now, because after a lot of discussion of a lot of important and, uh, and weighty subject matter, I'm just about to return us to celebrating the world of dude shooters. Uh, well, dude, shooters at that. Like, um, so we we gave out our E three awards, and they all went to very worthy winners. But I, I think there's one company that sort of flew under the radar, which is slightly bizarre because we actually um, we got to break the break the news of of their being acquired uh, by Nordis Film, that's Avalanche Studios. Um, so I don't know about everybody else, but I really thought Avalanche was in a bit of not necessarily trouble, but they had. But what felt like a lean few years, they had Just Cause Three, which didn't get as well reviewed as the as Just Cause Two. I felt like it hadn't done brilliantly in terms of sales, and it, at least it seemed to be released uh, in a fairly busy period for Square Enix, in which few of the big Square Enix releases. I think that was around uh, the second Deus Ex game, or at the second of the Deus Ex reboot. Um, yeah, maybe some others. But that hadn't done too well. The Mad Max game came out, again, not specifically well-reviewed and also didn't seem to do very well in terms of sales. But they kind of just sort of came out in a sort of blaze of glory this this year. They're sort of co-developing Rage 2 and providing the, some of the tech that makes that world possible. Uh, just Cause 4 was announced, at, was announced at the show, and they're also showing off their first um, new IP, which they're going to... They're, they're, they want to move towards a self-publishing model. We'll have a, a an interview about this on the site at the start of next week. They're kind of their plans to sort of move away from these big AAA games for publishers and ju- and just make their own stuff. So they've got this thing called Generation Zero coming out again, built on the same technology that's being used 
it's part of Rage 2. It's called the Apex Engine. It also runs their game, uh, The Hunter, which I think is probably what's more or less kept them going over the last couple of years. And it just seems like that it was kind of a reminder to me that the Avalanche is actually growing into a pretty big studio. I think like nearly 400 people now. We don't really have all that many AAA studios left in Europe, I suppose, uh, but they're definitely one of the bigger ones. And working on, you know, a couple of the, well, one of the biggest games at, at E3, another one of the bigger games at E3, while also sort of embracing independence and, and trying to kind of use this this technology to to grow even further and become a kind of an independent entity within AAA in their own right. Um, and I kind of feel like... They should have got best developer, but we gave it to From Software, and we can't do anything about that now. Well, that's it, really. <laughs> uh, Avalanche would have been a, a totally worthy all, alternative there. I From's um, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Is it Sekiro? Am I even saying that right? You might um, be butchering that, it, Brendan. It's possible uh, to know. Sekiro. Okay, well, that... That game looked cool. The idea of a of from software of the Dark Souls era returning to Tenchu and sort of combining the two, uh, that sounds like a you know that sounds like something I want. Uh, and then combine that with um, oh, what was the other? This is not making a great case for from software actually. That I can't remember the other game that they announced. It's a VR. Oh, it had a ridiculous right? name. Uh, De, yeah, De- 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 yeah. something. Yeah. Um, that one. Yes. Yes. So it was. It was a good show for From Software, but I I am totally open to to Matt's argument for for Avalanche. In my defense, I was completely like in the middle of E3 and fried and. You can't get that thousand foot view when you're when you're worried about the middle of the show floor and getting to your next thing. Apologies to Avalanche. <laughs> I, I actually got to see some um, Avalanche stuff in action. I got to see um, Just Cause Four, a gameplay demo of it, um, and it has to be. I have to confess that is the only Avalanche developed or co-developed title that appeals to me out of their out of their current roster. It is an impressive roster, but it's just the, that's the only title that appeals to me but watching that that game you think okay it's just cause it's going to be more of the same and to an extent you would be right but the technology they've got with that open world apex engine and the physics and the simulation is really impressive like they're watching the um developers they're like you know because it's all physics based we genuinely cannot tell what's going on he said as he then got run over by a, a car that he wasn't fully expecting. But seeing some of the stuff that you can do with that game, you can kind of transform like cranes carrying container, containers into like wrecking, rocket-powered wrecking balls. And the the one that I, I thought was quite interesting was... Um, so they've obviously tornadoes are, are kind of set pieces in this one. And they showed us a mission where the, set, the tornado is quite clearly going along a set route rather than just dynamically moving on its own accord. But... He picked up a rocket launcher, and you could see on the developer's face as he was playing, this thought just occurred to him. It's like, I've not done this yet. And he fired a rocket at the tornado, and the, the wind of the tornado caught the rocket, starts spinning it around and around, and it, then it shot a plane that was flying past. And it's like that was completely un, unpredicted. And like even the develop, you could see genuine delight on the developer's face that that had actually done something. It kind of, I'm rambling, I know, but it kind of got to me to the point where like, we, we've, 
so quietly talking about the next generation as and when the next generation arrives for me the thing that's going to excite me more about the next generation and it's studios like avalanche that are going to demonstrate this best is the possibilities for simulation and what games are able to do rather than how good they look that's what i'm interested to see going forward and that's why i'm probably going to be picking up just cause come christmas well, that is also what's kind of behind Improbables tech, right? Like the the, the uptake of that, the ability to kind of simulate worlds better. I mean, just just going back to Avalanche just quickly, Chris, you're like the you know the the resident sales guru. Was there? I mean, what did did Avalanche have like a bit of a lean period with its AAA stuff? Did did Just Cause three disappoint? Did Mad Max disappoint? Um, I don't know if it's fair to say they disappointed. I mean, Just Cause. You're right. I don't actually don't know how old Just Cause is, and I was looking it up, and it's not overly clear. It didn't do great in the UK, but it arrived at um, a time when there were uh, bigger Square Enix flops to worry about, um, shall we say? Um, Mad Max actually did all right. Um, I think. I think. I think. You know, it got. It was number two in the UK. It was like in the top ten best-selling games in September. It drifted away quite quickly. Um, I don't know if they expected a lot from it but it was i remember when warner brothers because uh, that was the i remember the mcb awards the year after and mad max was highlighted as one of their it beat their expectations which i don't think was very high but i um, mean it did all right and that was in but um mad max i think was the surprising one i think just cause disappointed a little bit um and they, they had a, one of their hunter games out i think as well um and they had a lot of content out in one year and i think that should have been the year where they really accelerated and then, then they moved into publishing after that and so um yeah i Thing is, the thing is now, if you're a big, there aren't many AAA studios left, and if you're pretty good at your job, and Avalanche are pretty good at their job, um, and um, you've got all these big publishers, particularly the platform holders, looking for content, um, looking to fill their release schedules up, a blockbuster here, a reliable AAA game studio that can turn out a decent title on time. I think you're probably going to be all right um, at the at the moment. Obviously, it's a really risky industry. Um, but there seems to be a, a bit of a land grab for, for content at the moment. And if you look at um, a lot of work for hire companies like um, uh, Sumo as well, and um, some of the people that Microsoft just bought, um, it's a uh, yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, you're right. Those games didn't um, those games didn't change the world, but I don't know if they did particularly badly. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And I guess you know, in terms of triple a studios not not owned by a major publisher i mean avalanche is topping 400 people now with with growth plans beyond that it's got to be one of the biggest ones left i suppose like actual independent triple a studios not many of them not many of them around anymore no no and that's why you got you know uh, it's really it's dangerous and it's risky and it's scary because all it takes is you know one flop or you know a, a publisher to go bust and you're not getting paid and i'm not saying work for hire is suddenly this golden goose but there aren't many op- there aren't many options for I say, you know, if Sega want to turn out a, a sequel to a big game, and they're internal. They have them. They're getting rid of their internal studios a lot. Um, and if you're Microsoft, who've just bought Ogro to Studios, you need someone to make Crackdown. Where do you go? Um, so yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I, did, I I look at that kind. Of, I looked at what they did in that year, and those games seem to do okay. Um, I know Just Cause wasn't as impressed. People weren't as impressed with that as the previous games. But Mad Max, I think you know, some people were quietly impressed with that. Um, I think all of that set them up in a in a way that probably made them quite attractive to work with again, which is clearly what's happening here. And I think they're doing the right thing in trying to diversify away from relying too much on work for hire. Um, but uh, it's nice to know they've got, you know, they're still getting good work. I think that the um, the trend has actually sort of been looking better for the independent AAA sort of studios lately. I mean, you look at yeah. Uh, 
From Software, Avalanche, Platinum Games, Sumo Digital. Like, there are some really top-tier, well-respected companies out there that people are excited about hearing that they are working on a game and a franchise that they are interested in. And I don't remember... Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, I don't, I don't remember after you know, like the big shakedown started and the switch to next generation with two thousand six, I guess, uh, the move to HD, like, really seemed to to crush a lot of those independent top tier studios, and it feels to me like it's actually getting some traction and and feels a bit more viable now, even if companies like Ninja Theory are getting gobbled up by Microsoft. Yeah, well, I think them getting gobbled up by Microsoft is a sign that, you know, that they are. I mean, I can understand it's, it's a constant fight um, to, you know, get those big deals over the line and, and you know, getting decent agreements. But, as, uh, yeah, yeah, I do think it's, I think if, uh, as I say, it might be because there's fewer of them. It might be because um, there's a need for content um, for some people. But it does seem that, that, you know, if you look at the, the amount of people they're hiring and the amount of um uh, you know, people like Sumo, you know, floating and generating de- decent revenues. You, you you can see, yeah, you can see it looks nicer. I mean, it, you know, it all it takes is a couple of um, closures and we're right back to square one again, but it, it's looking good. Well, Ninja Theory obviously was one of the, the more talked about acquisitions of Microsoft. Like, yeah, it was impressive they, they, they acquired four studios and then opened a new one, but Ninja Theory was the one that raised the most eyebrows. Hayden, you particularly wanted to talk about this. Yeah, the Ninja Theory acquisition, like you say, was the one that definitely raised the most eyebrows. And I, I, I can see why Ninja Theory went with the deal. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of PR spin on, on their version of it. But, you know, if Microsoft do really facilitate them to, you know, give them all the creative freedom that they desire and, and the budget to work with it, I think that's a really promising prospect. But I also wonder, you know, that the best game they've ever made pretty pretty sure objectively as well is hellblade and that was made with a team of 20 people so i almost wonder if you know giving them big teams to make stuff like heavenly sword um, maybe that's unfair but um yeah maybe that's maybe they're a, a better off working as this this small studio within within the limitations but you know i'm very excited to see what they're doing of, of all the studios microsoft picked up that's the one that sort of makes me most sad that i don't currently own an xbox one and I can imagine being sort of compelled to possibly pick up an Xbox One with a Ninja Theory's next game, providing it's not on, you know, some futuristic super platform that hasn't come out yet. Um, but, you know, there's undead, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, there's also Undead Labs and Playground, which Microsoft has been working with for a while now. Um, and then Compulsion, which I believe they're doing We Happy Few, which looks quite interesting. And then the initiative, which is their other studio. But I, I just think the most interesting thing about it really is, that, you know, when we were when we were going into E3, I don't. We were all saying, you know, what what on earth is Microsoft going to do in terms of exclusive content? You know, they're relying on old franchises like Halo and Crackdown and things like that. And it was exciting. It was one of the first, one of the few points during E3 I thought that was actually really exciting was seeing Microsoft laying down these five studios that are going to be churning out, you know, exclusive content, which is, you know, the Xbox's real sort of failure, um, this console generation. 
Ninja Theory make good, great games uh, <laughs> with big teams as well. I mean, DMC Devil May Cry was great. Enslaved, I loved Enslaved. They are both um, massively underrated gems. I'll give yeah. you that. Well, this is the thing, Ninja Theory. I can imagine, because they make, they remind me a little bit of Platinum Games in a way, because they make these amazing, really great titles that just don't sell well enough. Mm. And they, they, they did a lot of Disney Infinity stuff um, as uh, as well. And, um, and I should imagine... I, it must be exhausting constantly you know being this quality studio and never quite having that big hit game that sets up a franchise that means you're you know set for set for however many years and having to try and do it again and try and do it again i think it's a bit of a relief that finally a big company's come in for them and 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 pick them up i actually think playgrounds a bigger acquisition they're huge they've got two teams unlike the other studios which are all well, I know Ninja Fury has more than two, has two teams, but um, uh, I, you know, I think what's exciting and I agree is what the initiative are going to be doing and what Ninja Fury are going to be doing. Um, I think Playgrounds, I mean, what they do, Forza Horizon, which is fantastic, and I think we can all guess what their RPG is going to be. Um, so the it's it's the new stuff because Xbox hasn't done. I wonder the last new proper, I mean, Ori technically, but sort of big. New brands of Sea of Thieves. I'm going to shut up now. Yeah, see, um, but, but I mean, b- before that, I mean, there was there's basically nothing much new anyway. It's all being you know, yeah. gears. It's all being gears for you know another Halo game, that sort of stuff. Sea Th- of Thieves was the first new thing or first exciting new thing they bought out in a very long time. Yeah. It feels in terms like. of big budget, they did do things like Ori and stuff, I guess. Yeah. And, and if you go right back to the start of the generation. And they were, you know, they were backing things like Titanfall and Sunset Overdrive, and they mm-hmm. were doing bits and bobs like that. But they've not really had a breakthrough hit, actually. I probably, I mean, CFT seems to be doing okay at the moment, but Kinect Sports CS, um, to, you remember, you remember when they did things like Two Human and were investing in all those Japanese role-playing games and stuff, which didn't work out so well. Um, it's been a long time to see Microsoft really just start turning out games. Um, it's normally it has been Halo and Gears, Halo Gears. Um, Forza, you know, it, it has been a little bit um, cracked down, maybe a bit too samey. I think, I think it, I thought it was really exciting. It, although, upon saying that, the show was, you know, Halo and Gears. Given their situation, it was almost like the best thing they could have done, though, right? Because, I mean, no one expected. People, you know, kind of hoped, but no one really expected Microsoft to just suddenly reach into their pocket and pull out, you know, ten new franchises we've never heard of before. Like, that, that's completely absurd. So, like, acquiring five studios and then announcing that, yeah, we are making Halo 6, yeah, it exists, yeah, here's some here's some Gears stuff with some Funko Pop. Like, aside from just mysteriously conjuring up some games that no one had ever heard of or knew they were working on, like, this was probably the best thing they could have done to show that they actually are, you know, committed to putting out more more interesting software, specifically for, for them and for Xbox users, for yeah, not, just, not just next year, but, like, down the line. They, they did them? nothing wrong, I don't think. I think it was a, a great press conference. I think, yeah, they... Maybe there could have been more new IP, but they ended on their cyberpunk. And so um, there's some, I thought it was a, a really fantastic show for them. If there wasn't, if you, in terms of PR, if you look at their lineup for the next year, it's, it's two games um, and it's a bit weak. But I think in terms of, it was, a, it was setting out their stall that after a few years licking their wounds, they're, they're now back into buying things and investing and, and trying new stuff. And I think that's, I think that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the point, like, cause it's, you know, yes, it was just Gears and Halo, but I mean, they they could they literally couldn't have done anything else because they've allowed themselves to get into this position where it's basically impossible for them to create good new IP. It really feels like, and I think 
the thing that nin i mean the thing that nin so let, let's say you know that playground does forza horizon which is obviously brilliant but it's a kind of like it's a it's a spin-off of forza in a racing style that we've seen in games like project gotham racing and so on and so forth their rpg you know the unnamed rpg that's definitely going to be part of an existing ip whereas but ninja theory is a, a strong track record of creating new ip i mean dmc isn't a new ip but it was a very um it's a fundamental reinvention of the existing ip and a very good game enslaved was a new ip heavenly sword was a new ip hellblade was a new ip like new ip is what ninja theory does first and foremost um, I think Compulsion Games has been bought for exactly the same reason. But, but you know, to your point, Hayden, Ninja Theory's next game, it probably is going to be on the next Xbox, right? Like, these these studios are, are there so that it can be more than just Halo and Gears in 2E3's time. But I don't think we're even going to see very much of that even next year. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got... Uh, Xbox, I think, you know, there's a lot... of the most interesting thing Xbox quietly announced at the end was that they're definitely doing a streaming service for games, um, because they, this is a this is a you know the next generation is probably going to be more of an evolution. That well, that's the expectation. It's not going to be a, a, a heavy restart like we've seen in the past. You're probably going to see game that you can buy on PS5 that will still work on PS4 and that kind of thing. Possibly, I mean that's some of the theories that are going around. And if that's the case, that explains why PlayStation is so obsessed with keeping its ecosystem closed because they want. Um, then why would they want? They don't want people to go. Well, I can get an Xbox this time. I can still play with my PlayStation friends. I don't want that to happen. Um, I mean, my Xbox needs to be going in a completely different direction and saying, "Hey, we want Xbox to be everywhere and on every platform." And I'll be really interested to see how far away we are now from Xbox becoming a almost a Netflix-like online platform. I mean, there'll always be a console. There'll only be a need for a console for certain markets and certain people. But I think it'd be really cool um, in the future if we're getting to a point where. You know, you could stream Xbox games to your Switch. You know, that's... And I don't think that's something that Xbox would be against, and I think that's not even something Nintendo would be against. I think that's a... I think that's a genuine, real possibility in the mid-future. But, um, and I, and you, you sort of saw more of that, particularly all the talk about Game Pass as well, and Ninja Theory, and you know, when you start adding in the content from Ninja Theory and the content from Undead Labs and Compulsion and the Initiative, you know, doubled their studio count, and you, which in theory doubles the amount of output of products. Um, into this um, it, it, almost like a, a Netflix system of just creating new content in order to get people to sign up to Xbox. I think it's an interesting. I think it's an interesting feature. Yeah, well, one of the analysts who kind of fed back on the conference said that he, I think it was Yus uh, van Droenen from Superdata, said that it's you know that there is a, a very conceivable future in which. You know, Microsoft is like Netflix, and Sony's more like something like HBO. You know, like Microsoft sort of hosts all of the content. Then. But then, you know, th- this is pretty much what Satya Nadella has done with all of X- all of Microsoft's products across the board. He's turned them all into platform agnostic services, basically. So it would it would fit very well that you, the, the division for Xbox is broadly the same thing. Hmm. One thing I will say in Microsoft's defense this generation, I, I know we've been down on their, you know, their their exclusive lineups, but. Uh, uh, they came right out of the bat with, you know, like Rise, Son of Rome, and Sunset Overdrive. I think those were supposed to be like the Gears of War for this generation. Work with an external studio, make our own franchise, and then hopefully that carries us through. But even even in the last couple of years when everyone's been kind of saying, oh, it's so lean, you know, they announced ReCore, Sea of Thieves, Scalebound. Like they've been 
they've been trying to get new IP and new, you know, owned franchises out there for the platform, and it just hasn't connected well. Either they were canceled, scale-bound, or they just came out and they didn't set the world on fire. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, no, actually, I'm actually a bit of an Xbox fan. I play most of my games on Xbox One, um, and uh, I am... Um, I, I actually think, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, we, you list games. I, I, Sunset Overdrive is one of still one of my favourite games of this generation. But um, games like, you know, Rise, those weren't very good. And also it hadn't helped. They had that leadership change. They changed their development strategy multiple times, uh, which meant, you know, it's, it's confusing for us watching. But imagine how you, how you feel if you're, you know, Rare or Turn 10 or, so, you know, or even, you know, the Coalition or whatever, who's having to cope with, uh, we know we're now all about online multiplayer services games. So now we're all about single player again, and it's sort of back and forth. And I think now they may have settled on there a bit of everything, and, um, and, uh, and that's probably good. Okay, well, we're running short on time, so we're going to wrap it up there. But I want to thank the team for joining me this week. Thank you. That's cheers, yeah. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an interview with Kate Edwards on ageism and the 50 over 50 list that she's recently published. In the meantime, you can find all of your news, analysis and insight into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Music.